I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. Audio-Technica's support has allowed this podcast to continue to grow, and their equipment is a huge reason why it sounds great. 60 years ago, Hideo Matsushita established Audio-Technica in a small flat in Shinjuku, Tokyo. Today, you can experience his legacy with affordable audio equipment to help with working from home, content creation, and if you're like me, getting the best out of your vinyl collection. Find out more at audio-technica.com and use promo code LTAS10 if you're in Australia to get a discount and support this show. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Anka Richter is an international journalist and author based in Christchurch, New Zealand. Her work has covered climate change and social issues, and everything from the Christchurch earthquake of 2011 to the mosque attack of 2019. But over time, she's found herself covering more and more cults, to the point where she recently published her first book about the subject. Cult Trip is Anka Richter's fourth book, but it's her first written and available in English. I highly recommend it. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of sexual and child sexual abuse. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. I first came across the work of German-born, New Zealand-based journalist Anke Richter when I was researching Gloria Vale. She wrote a beautiful piece for New Zealand Geographic called Departures, and she had an amazing quote from community member Prudence Steadfast, who told her that Gloria Vale was perfect for women because they didn't have to work there. When Anke challenged this notion, he qualified it with, well, not men's work. I, of course, inserted this quote in my podcast episode after a long description of the incredible amounts of work that women do at Gloriavelle. Anka and I have been in touch ever since, and ended up both writing books about cults around the same time. Hers has just come out, and it is a riveting read. Anka goes into detail about her investigations into three cults, Centerpoint in New Zealand, Agama Yoga based in Thailand, and Gloriavelle. She also described some of her own experiences in the yoga and tantra spheres, including a visit to the Osho Meditation Resort in Pune, India, and her earliest experiences in New South Wales's hippie capital, Byron Bay. 
I knew we would have a lot to speak about when we finally teed up an interview. Just quickly before I launch into it, a brief apology for the sound at my end of the call. Even five seasons into the show, I sometimes hit up against a technical issue, and I had to ditch my fancy mic for this chat, so I'm sorry if it's a little muddier than usual. Luckily for you, I let Anka do most of the talking. Anka, thank you so much for joining me, and congratulations on the recent release of your new book, Cult's Trip. Oh, thank you, Sarah. It's so great to be here, honestly. It's such a pleasure to talk to you and I have a a fair few questions and I cannot wait to hear your perspective on so many of them. I have read the book and it is just absolutely fantastic. I would recommend it to anyone. So let's dive into a few questions. First of all, I just wondered if you could tell me a bit about your background and how you came to live in New Zealand originally. Yeah, I'm originally from Germany. I've been a reporter and writer for 30 years. I've had a few other books out in Germany, but about very different topics, and immigrated with my family to New Zealand almost 20 years ago. We were in the South Pacific for a while. That was my second book on a small atoll in uh, Tokelau, and then, um, yeah, we started our new life in New Zealand with our family, and my husband works here as a a doctor in Christchurch, and then... uh, yeah, a few years down the track, but I'm sure we're going to talk about this later. I fell into cult journalism like you. <laughs> well, well, question number two was, what originally brought you to the cult beat as a journalist? It actually, it actually happened in Byron Bay, out of all places, because I went to a festival called the Taste of Love Festival, which is the largest gathering of tantra or sacred sexuality teachers and practitioners or whatever you want to call them in Australia. And that was in uh, late 2012, I think. Yep. And um, I went there. It was actually an assignment for a magazine under a pseudonym. I wasn't quite sure I would put my name on it. But I was also curious about this whole scene and something there clicked for me. I, it was, I was on such a high. There's, I must have I must have sort of tapped into something that was important for me at the time, whatever that was, whether it was these loved up, shiny, happy people, what they were talking about, the workshops I was attending that were relevant for me at my time and maybe for my relationship or where I was at in my life and something that clicked and I was on such a high and I thought, wow, there's something here for me. I always want to feel like this, like I felt after I was ecstatically dancing and doing all these workshops. And then actually there I met a woman from New Zealand as well, Angie Micklejohn, who was a teenager at Centerpoint. And Centerpoint had been this so-called sex cult. It was actually, it was actually a therapy community outside of Auckland, the largest intentional community in New Zealand at the time, and I think since then, hundreds and hundreds of people have gone through it. It was the antipodian outpost of the human potential movement at the time when it was founded in the 80s by this charismatic leader and self-styled therapist, Bert Potter. And um, unfortunately, their whole philosophy around free love and opening up relationships also had really warped elements of sexualizing children or thinking that children can only be free if they're also not hindered by seeing adults having sex or maybe being being pulled into that. Anyway, 
the story that many New Zealanders know, but only maybe a few Australians, is that at Centrepoint, many, many children and teenagers were sexually abused. And Bert Potter also took drugs with them. They manufactured drugs at Centrepoint on a large scale. Okay, long story short, the police came in years later, busted Centrepoint, many people went to jail, and it was a massive scandal in New Zealand. But it kind of stayed under the radar till since then because it all happened before the internet. So I had never heard about Centrepoint when I went to the Taste of Love Festival, but I met Angie there who was giving essential massages in Wellington, and we clicked because she was also from New Zealand and someone introduced us or so. And then um, a while later I met her in New Zealand again, and she gave – snuggle parties or cuddle parties they also go by that name she called them snuggle parties and I I was just curious about her work and what she was teaching and doing and we connected and became friends and then she told me that she'd been a teenager at Centerpoint and that she was the commune concubine there and I was just so fascinated by it all she said yeah it was actually a sex card and when I first met her at the Taste of Love Festival the guru of that commune, Bert Potter, or the former guru, he was still alive. He had Alzheimer's. He was in an old people's home. Centerpoint was long gone. 20 years ago, it had shut down and people had dispersed. But there was an aftermath of all of that, which I was curious about. And then when I met Angie again, Bert Potter had died. And that had an effect on her, I think, like on many of his former victims. And um, she was ready to talk about it. And I thought, wow, that's a that's a big story for little old New Zealand, right? It's not like so many big scandals or things happen here. And I wondered why has no one ever written a book about it? And I thought, well, maybe I could. And I went and found a publisher and was maybe a little bit naive about it at the time. My agent in Germany, who I approached about this, and I said, well, I'm writing, I'm writing this book, and it could also be relevant for Germany because there was a similar community in Austria with many Germans at the time around the same principles, and they even had some contract with Centerpoint. And she warned me and she said, um, don't do it. You know, sexual abuse and cults, you're just going to run into so much legal and psychological problems. Just don't do it. You're going, going to make yourself unhappy and everyone's going to hate you in the end. And unfortunately, she was right, Sarah. But this this was my entry into cult journalism that I, I actually embarked on this massive mission to write that book, which I then gave up a few years later. But it, it just opened my eyes about cults and and the complexities of it, and and from yeah, then it was all go from there. Yeah, you really get into a lot of those complexities in your writing, and it's oh, I totally understand the the struggles that you went through speaking with these people and hearing the the conflicting kind of different parts of different stories, and we will get into that a little bit later. But I mm. guess all of that research did not go to waste because obviously in the end I believe you did an article on Centerpoint but a lot of that work made it into Cult Trip and so how did the new book idea come about? Yeah so when I gave up that first book about Centerpoint and we can talk about later why that happened but um, yeah it was it was like a massive felt like a massive failure at the time but at the same time also it was the right thing to do for my own mental health and for the problems I was facing and then I wrote The Making Off for North and South magazine here in New Zealand, and it became a big story, which actually still had 
an effect, a roll-on effect. So the Center Point Restoration Project was started by a woman who had been a child and had been sexually abused at Center Point. And reading my article just opened the floodgates for her. And she then later started this amazing project. And two documentaries followed. And I did more cult research on other cults like Gloria Bell and Agama Yoga and some others in between. And some more lightweight stories as well about my visit at the Osho Ashram, the meditation retreat in Pune. And then I was approached again about a year and a half ago, a good year ago, by Holly Hunter von HarperCollins, bless her, you know, because you can only do a project like this with a good editor by your side, who I didn't have on the first round, because my publishing editor back then, she had left the publishing house pretty much after she signed me up and I was completely on my own for all that time that I was researching the book and became harder and harder. So the fact that I was, first of all, approached again, that I had more cult stories by then, that I was more detached from all my center point work that impacted on me so strongly, it kind of gave me a new avenue. I thought, well, actually, I can just leave all the two hard bits out. I mean, too hard as in when I was on the mission to write the book about Centerpoint, it just became so conflicting also with some of the legal stuff with whose story can I tell and whose I can't. And they were, you know, often you could tell parts of someone's story, but then it would, it would contradict or conflict with other people were sharing. And so I thought, okay, I just take the bits that I know I can use without getting into a total mess again or legal trouble or, and so on. And plus I had a bit more and it, it suddenly felt doable. Plus I think the time was right because Gloravel has been in the news a lot lately with all the court cases here. And also since, since then, I mean, it's been seven years, right? Since I've, I first embarked on, on that first round of research. That was before the Me Too movement. So since then also Me Too has arrived in the wellness world and we've had a pandemic with, where we saw lots of people falling into conspiracy rabbit holes and cultic movements like QAnon. So it just felt like it was more topical again and that I had a great publisher, HarperCollins. So yeah, I smashed it out in, in a year. I just might, kept my head down and pulled it all together and did a bit more research again, especially on you know some of the some of the stuff where I thought, oh, I've actually got that covered, like a gamma yoga, but we can talk about that later. And then I actually went down that rabbit hole again because there was still a lot more that I didn't see coming. So I had to go deep again into into some of these some of these groups that I'd I had only um, researched a few years ago. Yeah. So that's the second round, and I'm yeah, I'm just really really grateful that I've been given this opportunity again. Mm, fantastic. I come at my cult coverage from a pretty cynical place overall, it's probably fair to say. And you, through the book, you seem to come to a lot of yours from a much more open-minded place and from a desire to try a lot of different things of a more spiritual realm than I would probably do. I find it really refreshing to hear of people who are agitating for practitioners in these areas to do better in the same way, I think that as an atheist, I have a lot of respect for the many religious people who are calling out the problematic operators in their world. And I can also see how with me, it's it's often the, the radical left-wing political cults that I get extra mad about, thinking that they should be doing so much better. And I wondered if you could share some of your positive experiences with the new age and what you were getting out of them. Yeah, I, I get to that in a minute, but I just wanted to say you're absolutely right. You would understand this better than most people who only look at cars superficially. The ones calling them out and who are actually doing this work, which is, you know, let's 
face it, it's always volunteer work yeah, most of the time because we don't have the organizations here, the professional ones or government-funded ones that could do that. But that work is often done by people in the same field who want the black sheep to do better. And so it's not a surprise for me that – for instance, Gloria Val, the people who are most active there and doing all the great work are from a Baptist church in Timaru, right? They're Christians. Or the people who are now calling out ISTA, the International School of Temple Arts, and they're also really active in, in Australia and they have a strong foothold here in New Zealand. The people who are actually doing this really great work of holding them to account and they're doing it, in, I think, in a very ethical and systematic way, they're all sex educators or, you know, you could say from the neo-tantra or sacred sexuality field. And to me, it's not a surprise. And I think that brings me back to the answer to your question, right? I guess one of the reasons why I was fascinated by Center Point and why I was drawn also to research that was because it was close to home in some ways. I could relate to people wanting to start a community, right? I've been going to this lovely little sort of hippie family festival here in North Canterbury in New Zealand called Convergence. It's been going for 20 years or longer. There's no charismatic leader. I think it's a pretty healthy community. But everything that draws us there, the people who go there, or to many other things, is not that different to what drew people to Centerpoint in the first place. The big difference was that they were all grouped around this charlatan and charismatic leader who, you know, took advantage of, of, of their desire to change in themselves and live in a community and maybe also open up their relationships and explore sexuality. Because if you look back at the 1980s, New Zealand was really a, a backwater when it came to that. There weren't any good progressive counseling services. It was just the church, right? So anyone with sexual problems in that field, they didn't really know where to go. And there was Bert Potter with all his sort of new human potential therapies like Gestalt. So maybe that gives you more context of why I was also drawn to this, because in some ways I was, I think at a time in my life where I was also interested in these things. And I told you before that I, you know, lived in Tokelau on this atoll with, a, with my family and I've done some big trips in my life as a journalist and so I've been on many adventures and somehow it felt like I don't need to go to any more places in the world. I've already immigrated to the end of the world, so to speak, from from Germany. But the new adventures for me were more exploring myself and what there is still to, to find out about myself or how to connect differently with others. And Maybe also after living in New Zealand for all these years as an immigrant, always you know feeling maybe I'm a bit different. I'm more direct. I come from Germany. There's something missing for me sometimes. I want that intensity. I'm I'm a bit of an intensity junkie to start with. So maybe all of this drew me to the yeah. I wouldn't even say New Age world because I'm I'm cynical about that too. I'm I've always been skeptical and cynical about anything esoteric. And while there is a a part of me, and I guess in everyone, there is some, I don't even know if I can call it spiritual yearning, but there's something, you know, that's not being being met by traditional churches, at least not for me, traditional religions. But I think it's in all of us. And and it's a very um, human trait. And it's actually, it's not something that I would shame or look down on, that it draws us to these spaces, right? I think you asked why and how did I get into exploring things for myself, right? But I think it was something for me just clicked and I thought, wow, what what if I take some cool courses and I get to meet all these people in this intensity and we're all in these sharing circles and it's a bit, you know, I mean, now when I'm cynical, I say, well, it's trauma porn, you know, you, you 
you hear people sharing the innermost stuff and you bond over that instantly. And I suddenly had connections that went deeper with people I've met for two days on a course than with some of my regular friends in my, in my neighborhood. And I now see that actually as part of the problem. <laughs> Whereas back then I thought, wow, that's amazing. I should have more of that. Yeah. And now I see, see it as that's part of the drug that I was craving. But, you know, you know, there's a reason why drugs are not <laughs> healthy, but they can feel good, right? But then further down the track, <laughs> they can become a problem. And I think that's, that's kind of what it was for me, yeah. Yeah, it all, that totally makes sense. And that yearning for a deep human connection is, is obviously something that we all have. So I think, as you say, there are so many reasons people join all kinds of different groups and some of them turn out not to be great. And putting the blame on anyone who's joined a group that turned out to not be great is, is where a lot of the problems lie. You mentioned briefly the Me Too movement and its impact on kind of the, well, in the book, you mentioned the Me Too movement and uh, you spoke with Matthew Remsky, who I also admire, and mentioned his perspective that the rationalization and spiritualization of abuse in Neo Tantra and yoga means the threshold for revealing abuse is even higher and more difficult to overcome. Does that strike you as true? Yeah, absolutely. So what we're talking about is spiritual bypassing, right? Can I actually, could I yeah. get you just to uh, mm -hmm. expand on spiritual bypassing as a concept really briefly before you go on? Absolutely, because not everyone is familiar with that term, right? I think gaslighting is, people can understand better what that is now because it's, it's used more. And it kind of goes hand in hand with, with, with gaslighting, spiritual bypassing. What I mean by that is that when something bad happens to you, you're in one of those spaces, one of those courses, or in a you know, new religion, or you know, one of those cultic groups. Then if something happens to you that you're not happy with or that you're up against or it's, it's traumatic or it feels like abuse, then you are told or you've learned to tell yourself that oh no this is this is good for me this is a, this is this is my learning this is my growth and and i think this is the worst what did i do to attract this right so this is that's spiritual bypassing and unfortunately with a lot of the more new age philosophies or movements and i include ista in that very strongly and i think that's one of the problematic things is that it's baked into their into their philosophy so when you hear from the get-go we have zero tolerance for victim consciousness yeah even that word victim consciousness for me is already awful because let's face it there are victims it's just a technical term someone did something and you've you know, if, if I hit you in the face, you're the victim of my assault, right? And of course, you have a choice whether you go to the police or you hit me back or you're going to be sad about this for the rest of your life or then you hit other people. There are many ways to deal with this. And I think it's good to learn good ways how to overcome that or whatever. But the fact is this happened to you and it's probably not okay and you should be able to address it and it should be, it should be some kind of justice process and spiritual bypassing completely undermines that because you're you're not just up against uh, speaking up against the powerful leader maybe who's done this to you i mean not slapped you in the face but maybe touched you inappropriately in a yoga class or, or in, on your course yeah it's it's also it, it then stops you from speaking up about it also in front of a group because you're not only are you challenging the leader which is an occultic setting already almost impossible and would put you on the outside, but you're also showing that you're not as evolved as the others because you are, quote-unquote, stuck in victim consciousness. So that's spiritual bypassing. And it's it's such a 
it comes with so many thought terminating cliches, right? It's, yeah, you, what did you do to call this in? How did you attract that? This is why the law of attraction, I think, is which is so popular in those spaces, right? I, I see it as part of the problem. Uh, of course, you know, there are, yes, you could always say we, if we think about something a lot, then maybe where, you know, our focus goes, where our energy goes, or these kind of things, these kind of homilies, they make sense to a certain degree. But if you if you actually apply this to a situation where people are being harmed or where something bad happened to you and there should be some way of addressing that, then spiritual bypassing is just so toxic. And that's toxic spirituality for me and toxic tantra. That's what I quote it in my book because, unfortunately, I've seen it too much in, in those spaces in the neo-tantra world, yeah. Yeah, and I think that kind of attitude uh, crops up in many, many other cults as well, whether they're spiritual or New Age or, or not at all. It's um, finding ways for anyone who has a complaint to actually turn it back in on themselves rather than being able to bring it to the fore. I see it all the time. It's so self-sabotaging, isn't it? That's really what it is. And just imagine, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but you can, you've probably seen it and you can imagine what that does to your psyche when you're already having doubts and when you're already struggling, maybe some of the teachings that don't make sense and you can't ask about them. But if you're having a problem, it's always on you. You are the one who's not good enough that you're having a problem. Even if that problem is because you've been assaulted or you've been gaslighted or you've been, you know, abused in some emotional way. Yeah. Mm. There are some incredibly harrowing stories in your book. A couple of them were just incredibly moving for me, particularly one of the center point ones where the, the person that you spoke to, I just was shocked by the, the compensation that she received in comparison to that that some others who had allegations against them had received. And you've touched on this already, but people ask me a lot in this work how I protect myself and make sure that I don't become too impacted by so many stories of trauma. You're really open in your book about a lot of the personal difficulties with this kind of reporting and the toll that it can take. And so I wondered how you manage this with your work now. Yeah, I've definitely learned from my past mistakes. So Louise, who you talk about, the most harrowing story in my book, and definitely the woman who changed my life in a way, because when I came across her, I had already I hadn't given up on my research because I was still in the middle of it, but I, I, I had hit a dead end. And I basically knocked on every door and tried to speak to every person who I knew was a, a survivor from Centerpoint. And many doors had, were shut by then because word got out that maybe I have an agenda or I'm you know, poking my nose in too deep and all of that. And then I found her and – she told me her story for the very first time. I was the first person, not the first journalist, the first person in her life. She told the whole story over many hours. I'll never forget that day. She she once tried to walk into a, a women's center and tell the story to a therapist or a counselor there. And, I mean, according to her, the counselor threw up in the wastebasket. Now I know why. Because it is a really, really horrific story. And it was a turning point for me, and I – you know, and from then on, I was on this mission, on this crusade that I wanted adults from Centerpoint, the former adults. I mean, the children are now adults too, but the first generation, I wanted them to understand what they've actually done and the carnage that's still there in their wake. So back then, I was not really equipped to deal with taking taking this in, listening to someone with such a horrific story who confided in me. And also, you know, I wasn't just a police person taking 
a, in a report, we, we, we bonded over this. We became friends, actually. And even though on a completely human level, I think that's totally understandable and I cherish that. I really value that. And I still see her as a friend. On a professional level, that's, oh, man, it's a, it's a slippery, slippery slope as a journalist where you're supposed to be detached. But then with this kind of work I was doing, I couldn't be detached because I needed to open my heart too and I was getting close to people to get them to open up to me and there was this trust. So it's a it's a weird arena that I was in and I wasn't really trained to do that. No one had coached me on that. I don't get it. I didn't get any supervision from anyone like some reporters now do in some news organizations. I was a freelancer. I have no, you know, trauma training or anything like this. So all of this um added to to the problems that I ran into. I know that. So on my second round with HarperCollins with this book now with Caltrip, I knew that. I thought, okay, first of all, I knew I don't have to go into all the center point research again because I already have that. It was an unfinished manuscript that I could basically use. I just had to update it and work on it only with the people who wanted to work with me on it, and I could use that. So that was a, a relief already. And I knew better this time. I just needed a really good network, a support network. So I had a great crew of trusted friends, all from – everyone's sort of wearing a different hat. One was an investigative reporter. One was a, a book person. Another one is a, a, f- a close friend who just knew my struggles from back then. Another one is a therapist. And they all had my back. And even if I – I probably didn't even utilize them as much as I thought I would have needed to. But just knowing they were there and I could just run something past them. And I had a fantastic editor. So all that helped. And I also saw my therapist quite regularly. So all that helped. So it wasn't as um, – luckily, I didn't run into the same psychological problems. It was still a massive project, pulling it together. But just as a – you know, with a big deadline and just writing a book, as you know, is is, is stressful in itself, getting it all across the line. But and, – and I had also really good legal support from HarperCons, which was really, really important with a project like this. I mean, for two weeks, two lawyers oh, – I think longer, like weeks, weeks and weeks – two lawyers went over every word – to make sure I won't get sued and this is solid and we tone things down and, you know, some things I couldn't put in in the end, but that's okay. I think the gist of it and the flavor of it still still comes across even if some some facts were softened. So that all that really helped. And it goes to show that, you know, you're, you're on a – solo mission there too that but these, these we need support networks to do this this kind of work and also i found now in comparison to back then on my first center point round like i said before we've had the me too movement there are more activists in these spaces now there are more survivor groups who've formed and with each of the three main parts of my book the center point one the agama yoga one and the glory well one I had one person from basically from a survivors group or an activist group for each part of the book as a fact checker and someone who could go over it again with me and just to make sure I get it all right because I haven't lived in any of these groups. I'm not a survivor from these, these, these cults. And that's again, it's a bit tricky because like you, you know, we, we, we try to do our best, but then we can always get it wrong. And the one thing that people can have on us is always, oh, you don't know, you weren't there. And that's true, we weren't there. And even, but even people who were there, they have, you know, you can have two people from the same cult, the same time, same years they grew up there, and they have very conflicting views on it. I've, I've seen that, and that was part of the problem with Center Point. But it's always a bit of a, yeah, an obstacle that, that I don't really know in the end what the place was really like. I can only go by what people told me. So to also have 
people I really trust and whose judgment I trust and who I know are stuck in archive, a wealth of information, and I could always go back to just to double-check something, and that really helped as well. So I had some really great trusted helpers, and I'm super grateful for them, and they know who they are. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very glad that you got to the end of Cult Trip and managed to put it out without having any more breakdowns because uh, – <laughs> It's, it's a fantastic book, as I mentioned. In my own book, I have a section about how sexuality is used by various cults in their coercive techniques, whether it's through repression or encouraging more openness in ways that can be highly damaging to individuals. I hadn't thought as much about how general society's sexual hang-ups are encouraging certain types of cults to flourish as well. And I wanted to quote from your book, most of us lack the language, safety, and experience to develop our own sexuality healthily. So unlike learning to cook or drive a car, we can't just book a session with a licensed instructor at the community centre who shows us how to achieve greater fulfilment in the bedroom. But because the need is huge and female arousal and desire are so complex, we now have a massive unregulated market of self-appointed experts and healers where gynecologists and psychologists can't help. This makes a lot of sense to me from looking into organisations like One Taste and the Welcomed Consensus. Some similar organisations are not cults, of course, and are doing good things. But do you think there's always a risk there or can these groups self-police effectively without regulation? Oh, it's such a good and complex question because I just put out an interview in Germany few weeks ago with two people. One is a sex and intimacy coach, a somatic and intimacy coach, and the other one is a sex therapist. And they also did sexological body work trainings many years ago. One of them was a tantric masseur, a massage person. And I interviewed them about the risks and the potential for abuse in those spaces, including sexual body work, which was kind of new for me too, because I always thought, well, that's the safe one. You know, they're not woo-woo. They have a really good curriculum. It's like a physical approach by someone who's not getting any gratification from that. It's just a physical approach to sexual awakening or healing in, in those spaces and we should normalize that and just like you're getting a, a massage or going to the physio you know like how the physio compliments the orthopedic surgeon as quote-unquote sexual healer whatever that means though it's a bit of a, a wishy-washy term right um, but maybe a sexological body worker could can complement a sex therapist or a gynecologist so I was always passionate about this kind of work in fact a few years ago I also wrote a piece about that, about sexual healing for New Zealand media. And I think back then I was far more enthusiastic about it than I am now because it's, yes, there is a huge potential for abuse as well, unfortunately. And from what I heard, for instance, with sexological bodywork in the trainings, more than in actual sessions that people give to to clients but on the trainings definitely abuse has happened for instance a woman is receiving a what they call a yoni massage so yoni is the is the sanskrit or the also the new age word for for the vulva right and um and then suddenly at the end of that she she's being penetrated by the the masseur's penis. And that has also happened at Agama Yoga. Those were some of the rape allegations at Agama were actually women being raped without a condom after a yoni massage. So that's the, that's the sort of the complex field where a yoni massage in itself 
it's a it's a wonderful thing. There's nothing wrong with that. I totally advocate for people normalizing this and maybe being you know better trained and how to do that and maybe also maybe people finding out why they need it and doing it for the right reasons or whatever they are. Anyway, I, I have no problem with this kind of work in itself, but I have a problem with a lot of the people who are some of the people who are offering it and who are these self-styled healers and who then put people in a, in a trance basically by getting them into these higher states of bliss and ecstasy and orgasm and and it's it can be really powerful if you experience that for the first time and and if it's not if it's then done by someone who thinks oh I'm just going to give her more or, or because I can and maybe they think they're helping you with it but it's totally out of consent right and then the the next problem with this is that if you if you even realize maybe later that this was rape or this was not consensual if you can even address it yourself can you really go to the police would you really go to the police and and when they ask you so where did this rape happen and you say well i was paying someone to give me <laughs> give, give me a naked i was naked and i was receiving a genital massage and was oh and they say oh so basically you were that was you went to a sex worker and do you know what I mean? There is so much shame and so much complexity and so much less credibility almost in our culture where we're at. So this is also why I'm passionate speaking up about this and why I want to raise awareness because I, I think, yes, our, our society, our Western society, I guess our whole world has a lot to learn still when it comes to sexuality. I still have a lot to learn. And that's what actually brought me to to Ista, for instance, and because I, I see the need for that and I'm passionate about, you know, that we, we shouldn't just be in our, in our conservative or, or learned or conditioned corset. But, but then what's on offer is just so, like, you, you know, you quoted from my book before, it's a large unregulated market. And not, not that we can always put, you know, safety stickers and rules on everything, but th there are good reasons why certain professions like medicine and psychotherapy, they are really clear codes of conduct. conduct. Otherwise, you, you lose your job. And I think the same should be true for anyone touching anyone's body and, and definitely going into their mind and their heart and their soul and all of that that's promised when, you, when you're in the neo-tantra scene. It's such a – you go so – deep with people. So I think the people doing that need to be so ethical and abide by a code of ethics and need to be screened properly and should have some kind of trauma training at least. Because otherwise, I mean, it's just cowboys out there. And, and now we see the harm that's happened over the years. And finally, the Me Too movement has arrived in the, in the Tantra world and it's about time. Yep, absolutely. I'm nodding vigorously all the way through. Um, I'm sorry if I'm ranting, but <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're giving me a chance to actually say that because it's it's super important and it's really tied in with this whole cultic topic for me. Yes, I I, I love a good rant. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Another quote from your book that struck me is this one: "The onus to overthrow an abusive, narcissistic, controlling master falls on deeply manipulated and traumatized victims." And you continue. There is little support from police, government, health services, or from the public who often sees them as naive and stupid. So as a result of this, it's often reporters that these impacted individuals turn to, as you and I know, and sometimes those reporters don't do a great job either. I think overall a lot of the coverage is getting better and more nuanced. 
From your experiences, what do you think journalists need to keep in mind when they're covering these stories? You're right. What you said about the journalism is getting better, and you mentioned that in your book as well. And I was I was nodding when I when I read that. I agree. Um, there is more awareness. It's it's not just about sensationalism anymore. I mean, I had to learn quite a few things myself, and to be actually, I think that you would call it survivor focused and more trauma aware. So I've I've learned some really hard lessons, and I've definitely. You know, I made some mistakes where I was too pushy, I guess, or I thought I'm just dealing with another professional person around my book. And I didn't realize that, no, this person has been severely abused in their past, sexually abused, emotionally abused. And I mean, I'm not a therapist, but I, I think it's clear to, you know, to us that that means someone has taken advantage of them and they didn't have a say in that. And they, they, there was a lack of control. And and then for me to be the journalist who says, no, this is how we're going to do it, or this is how you should be doing it, or hey, this is – that I really learned that the hard way that you can't do that. And I almost lost some some of my, my sources over that. Because I, I've, I've I learned the hard way that you have to give them up, have to give people options and say, look, you know, how would you like to be in there? Is, is that does this feel better for you, or does that feel better, or shall we wait another week before you come back to me, or basically respect their pace? Huh? Be, be aware as, as a reporter. I mean, we should always be aware of this as reporters with anyone who we interview, especially with people who've gone through trauma, whether it's they're from a car crash and you go door knocking the next day. Yeah, of course, always be respectful and understand people have trauma and they don't owe you anything for your story. But in this, in this field where, where I was moving, and like I said before, without any previous training, I sort of fell into this. I think we just need to be more aware also how headlines can can hurt. For instance, the review that I got, actually just my first review in New Zealand, Book of the Week, which is great. And the headline says, awful people, awful ideas, I think. And then I had a comment straight away from a woman who said, that's a horrible headline. And I got where she was coming from. That of course people in cults are not all awful. It's actually more the opposite. I think most people who end up in cults, they're actually pretty amazing people and they they fall into for all the for, for lots of good reasons, right? So I, I got where she was coming from, but it didn't even even to me that didn't spring out at first. Maybe it's because it's that book of the week and I was thrilled to see my first review. But then on a closer look, I thought, yeah, actually, that's that's quite offensive to someone in my book if they read and review awful people. Right, and of course, it's just a headline, and and I don't even know who in their newsroom you know wrote that, and it's probably directed at some of the awful people I also interviewed. So yeah, fair enough, but things like that, or when the documentary about Centerpoint came out here in New Zealand, and I remember oh, I did a, a big interview with some of the women who were in it, and I had I didn't know what the online headline would be like. Since then, I've learned that too. Always check the online. Ask the editor to show you the online headline because you know someone in the newsroom might just be writing this and not even the editor you, I, you know, you're dealing with. And it was just really, it was just so salacious and it was so offensive for these women who'd spoken up as survivors. And I then had to chase the newsroom on a Saturday morning to change that. So I've learned these things that I've, I think there's just a, a lack of sensitivity around around sexual abuse for starters. I mean, some, some media organizations are definitely getting better at that. And also there is still that sort of skewed idea of, ooh, cults are weird and people in there are weird and we can just, ooh, you know, we're just... It, it, 
it's it's a freak show for many people, and it's easy to make it into that, and it's definitely good headlines. And I'm this is why I'm so glad also that you're doing what you're doing, and, and especially you're reporting about Gloriaval because we didn't see that here in New Zealand for a long time. It was all about ooh, you know, ooh, it's kind of fascinating, but people also loved you know hearing more about it, but but not because they were concerned, but because it was like watching this weird movie but it's 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 real yeah and obviously that makes me think of the other kind of reporting which is that of people who go in and and don't uh don't tell the stories of the those who have been impacted negatively at all which is a whole other a whole other thing yeah something to add to that exactly this is why i focused not so much on Bert potter the guru of Center Point or on Swami, the guru of, of Agama or, or, you know, the current leaders of Gloria Bell. For me, it wasn't so much about the leaders because at least in those three cases, I think it's, it's pretty clear who they are and why we see them as abusive cult gurus, right? Or alleged, let's just say allegedly abusive cult gurus because some of them are still operating. But I'm, I'm way more fascinated, not just fascinated, but I think it's also far more important to actually understand the people who are in there and what they're going through and especially those who've come out of it because we we talk a lot about, yeah, those those sort of weird sides of cults, but, but there's, there hasn't been a lot of reporting, at least not until recently, about what, what, what do people go through who actually come out of it? And how hard it is for them, and that's that's I think that should be our focus with the reporting as well. Yeah, yeah, and and trying to at least provide some kinds of paths out and services for those who come out. I think that that is so sorely lacking in society. I totally, I totally agree, and I think we're both united in that. Right from across the across the ditch, across the Tasman, that we don't have those services yet in New Zealand and Australia. And look where I come from, in, in Germany, we have. So many organizations. I just visited one in Berlin just, just not long ago. There are about 60 or 70 people in paid jobs, paid government jobs or, or institutions that are also government funded that help cult survivors and they do cult prevention and they go to schools and they, they're the go to go to place if you're worried about someone from your family who might have ended up in a cult or fallen down a conspiracy rabbit hole. So there's a lot of overlap with that. And, and I think it's so needed. And even with Scientology back then when I still lived in Germany, there were some really good sort of cult busting people and they were actually paid by by the government. I mean, they they had didn't have a religious agenda. They had an agenda to keep, especially a country like Germany that was already led into, you know, was manipulated by a charismatic political leader, and look where that ended up. So I think there was a lot of awareness always in the you know in the last decades in Germany that we don't want this kind of influence here, um, and not just from the political side, but also from the from the spiritual ideological side. And I think we need it in New Zealand and Australia too. We need properly trained professionals who can help cult survivors who come out in their counselling and their integration back into life. It shouldn't just be done by, by volunteers who give their, their free time and money. We need witnesses, I mean, expert witnesses in court. That's also really important because we've seen this with, with Gloravel, maybe not so much in the last round, but in previous cases of sexual abuse. So if you have a young woman who's who's lived in Gloravel all her life, and as you know, She's been subjugated. She's never spoken up. She's used to having a group of older men around her talking down at her for hours and hours, telling her what she's done wrong. And done wrong in this case could be that she has actually been sexually abused, but it's put to her that that was her fault and because she's too flirtatious or she's shown a little bit of her leg or something and therefore she should be the one 
apologizing and doing better. So a woman who's grown up with that, imagine her being in a courtroom. If she ever even gets there and she's been brave enough to lay charges and it finally gets to court and even that is not always a given. And then she is confronted by the defense lawyer and so on. And they talk down at her and their older man. And this woman just then shrinks and she doesn't know how to stand up for herself and she might just nod and say yes that's true and and if a judiciary doesn't understand that if judges and lawyers and police don't even understand those those dynamics how how can we create fair fair trials for people i mean that's the extreme case but also what we need is is prevention and actually to to just understand better what cults are and and nip them in the bud when when there are concerns and not just wait until the police intervenes because that's i mean at least with Gloravel here and also with centerpoint it's just taken too long and they've turned a blind eye for too long the social services absolutely absolutely agree and you you mentioned briefly there uh conspiracy theories which leads quite nicely into my next question which was i wanted to talk briefly about fact and if you could tell me a bit about what it is and how it came about oh for sure so fact is short for fight against conspiracy theories great acronym and it was born from a group that i actually started with some friends on Facebook called Rabbit Hole Resistance, a Facebook group, which we started after we called out a spiritual festival here in New Zealand called Luminate that had they had promoted cons- awful anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists like David Icke on their website, and it was quite a shocker. And we collected names of many DJs and musicians around the country and wrote an open letter and had them sign it and we spoke up against that. And then we just used the momentum and started this Facebook group and it grew really fast because there was such a need for people who were so concerned about their friends and family falling into rabbit holes and they felt the division. And like we said before, New Zealand is a small country and people here are really kind and gentle and they stick together. They don't really like to argue. They don't really like to be in factions. But then this was right in their families and in their lives and they were concerned. And so it was great to to have this group where people could not just vent, but they could really share their concerns and, and the and the Kaupapa, as we as we say in New Zealand, so the ethos of the group, it's a Maori word, beautiful, beautiful Maori word. The ethos of the group was, is always that we don't mock and shame people who've fallen into these beliefs. And that goes for me with also with people who are in cults, right? We, we don't think of them as idiots because any one of us could be that person. So um, that's been a, a really great, like a, a refuge for, for people and it's still going. And then from that, there were some people who were a bit more action-minded and they said, well, but what can we actually do? How can we... You know, that was before the big protest in Wellington, but we we have some people in the fact group that then formed who are great moles and they're on Telegram channels, they find stuff that even investigative journalists in New Zealand didn't didn't know about. So we pass it on to them. We we had some good media stories and I think the biggest success has been our local body elections this year, where some of our members just put all this extensive information together about local candidates and on school boards and health boards and so on who were um, actually part of Voices for Freedom or had fallen into conspiracy beliefs and were pushing for some really outrageous agendas. But it wasn't always clear when you just read their little bio on the, you know, in the election leaflet. And so we put all this information out and that was a, a huge success. And I think it's had some, had some impact. But I tell you what, it wears people out. And I've seen it firsthand with some of my amazing factivist friends, what this kind of work, you know, it does impact on your mental health. It wears you out. It's, 
it it shouldn't just be done by volunteers. There should be there should be support. There should be a better infrastructure where people can do this in a in a professional capacity because it's actually super important. So that's what factors, and I'm so proud of this this group. It's just a small grassroots handful of volunteers. I think we finally managed to get a bank account as of this week or so. Finally, we're a charitable organization and they take donations, which I think is very much needed. We have a $500 donation from the Skeptics Society of New Zealand. It was their yearly award and we got it last year, but we haven't even had an account yet where to put this money. So hopefully we will grow and do more good things. I'm super proud of them. It's, it's really inspiring to hear about that kind of work. I think it's so needed and it's, it's really great. Hopefully, Hopefully it could grow into something that has some decent funding, as you say, and not just be all volunteer work. I'm going to link to another podcast in the show notes as well, where you spoke on the Tell Me About It podcast about the cultic dynamics at play within the anti-vaccine movement. Some people may not be cognizant of the power relationships within this movement because it lacks a singular charismatic leader, but there are many different figures who position themselves to profit from the movement. What can you tell me about the cult-like side of this community? It's not so obvious, is it? Because it's not like there is one place like Laurelville or one leader in an orange robe or people chanting <laughs> in tongues. Or It's not like there's one organization as such, even though you could say QAnon is, is definitely or was or is um, it's sort of like the, the head of the snake. But then it's, it gets so much more confusing and wider and there's so many shades of gray. I think one good one good hallmark to to see is always or to ask yourself is see what they say and see what they sell. So the grifters in that space, that's you know, when you see people who are peddling their supplements or their snake oil and then you you see their rhetoric and what their the ideologies and the things they're pushing on social media and the outlandish claims they make about vaccines or whatever, or that's the, that's where, you know, where the alarm bells should always go off. Like, hang on, this is, you know, is this really a valid source? But I mean, look, we've had these discussions over the last two years again and again and again, people who are, people who fell into something and that's true for cults as much as this, this, the wellness grifters and the conspiritualities, People who fall into those beliefs or into those groups or spaces or algorithms, they do that for emotional reasons. And someone who's been put into something for, for emotional reasons and not for factual reasons, because we know there are enough facts out there that could counter all of that that they believe, you're not going to get them out again with 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 facts either you, by showing them the real study of you know or the real experts or telling them that their guru is full of you know it doesn't it doesn't sway them you you can only reach them on an on the emotional level and and hopefully at some point and we might be seeing this now with a conspiracy movement here in New Zealand and in Australia where maybe now where the protests are over and the mandates are over and things have sort of gone back to normal but we're also having a new COVID wave so we'll see how it all plays out. I think there would be quite a few people now who were very passionate and very fired up a few months ago and who might have had a change of heart. I'm not even saying change of mind, change of heart. And maybe then that leads to a change of mind where they can see things a bit more clearly now. But then that comes with shame and with having to admit that maybe they they were wrong. And and that's and that's where the cultic thing comes in. Because when you when when you already cut off ties 
even just if it's just on social media, but but in some ways that's our life too, right? In our peer group, if you've already positioned yourself in one corner and that's your support group, and they applaud everything you say, and the more radical you are, and the more passionate you are, and the more fiery, the more support you get there in that corner. And even if you, when you suddenly realize, well, maybe that's actually not where I want to be anymore. How do you how do you leave from there, and how do you go back into your old? life so to speak and I mean that metaphorically also like even on, on social media where you've maybe offended people on in Facebook comments or on Twitter and you've put yourself out there as this ex, well, kind of extremist and how do, you, how do you go back from there it's like having been in a cult and how do you find the way back and I think you can only find the way back if there are people who love you no matter what you still hold the hand out to say, yep, I don't believe in what you believe in or what you've said. That was pretty okay. But I'm, I know you're a good person and I'm still here for you. And please yeah, come back and let's just carry on with what we had before and also remind them of the things that are not around this ideology. So talk about other things. Take them out for, you know, go, go, go for a run or a surf or a movie that has nothing to do with uh, the, the cult or – or, or the anti-vaccine or whatever they were part of before. I think that's also really important because when we're so sucked into something, we we tend to neglect other parts of our lives. It just comes comes with the territory of that. And then to actually gain some of these parts back is super important. And for that, we need, we need people who are still there and, and who love us no matter what. Yeah, I think that's... That's really what I can say because I'm, you know, I'm not an expert on, on misinformation. There are people who know far better what is actually going on. And it's so complex and we're only just beginning really to understand, I think, the complexity of it all because it's still so new. And we're, we're looking at the carnage of it and at the capital riots and, and all of that. And my, my worry is what, what about the people who we don't get back? What about ones who are becoming even more radicalized and more extreme now? And now that they don't have the pandemic or the vaccines to rant about anymore, where are they ending up ideologically? And what we see, I think it's it's fair to say without, again, like without being an expert on the matter, but I think it's fair to say just from my observations that a lot of them had drifted into into some politically extreme spaces of um, being you know, pro-Russia, transphobic, homophobic, misogynistic. So that's – and that, those are my concerns too. I mean, honestly, at this at this stage, I don't really care anymore if someone is vaccinated or not. I don't think it's it's the big game changer anymore. Yeah, that, that was a big issue two years ago when we wanted to reach herd immunity and keep our community safe and safe. And we did the best we could, at least here in New Zealand. But some – I mean, that ship has probably sailed now. But question is now – what do people align themselves with now and, and, and what does that lead to, especially with some of the hate speech that we see? So that's my worry. And, and it's not easy. I mean, I've been, I've been talking about this for the last two years and, and a lot of people in the beginning were saying, well, hang on. So just because I don't want to get vaccinated, you are saying I'm this and that. And it's not as easy and clear cut as that. But I think it's important to not ignore that the, the, the people who often – sucked into these these spaces, they don't quite understand that they're aligning themselves with some political forces that, that are just awful and destructive and anti-democratic. And this is why I think we need to keep talking about it and watch it. A hundred percent. And you see the the people going along to those rallies are kind of standing side by side with some pretty hardcore far-right figures. Um, I, I did notice that the on the Twitter bio for fact it says uh, QAnon equals a fascist ideology, and I I wondered why do you think 
I have, I have so many thoughts about this. You know, I've, I've been through this whole thing of watching family and friends go down these routes and it's been incredibly difficult over the last couple of years. But I, I wondered if you had any thoughts about uh, why so many people are so slow to see the fascist elements of these kinds of conspiratorial beliefs. I mean, I can only speak for New Zealand, but I also have a German lens on because it's where I come from. And it's I don't want to say people here are more politically naive. I think they just haven't been hit so hard by <laughs> a whole country, you know, falling into fascism. So there's an innocence. So not not a naivety, but maybe an innocence. And I think it's made us, at least here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, less aware how some of that crept into these new age and spiritual spaces. So for me, quite early on in the pandemic, I was I was watching what some people, especially you know, from the New Age and Easter scene, were were posting and how they suddenly turned into Trump supporters and QAnon supporters. And I thought, oh my God, that can't be for real. And then seeing how that sort of crept crept into New Zealand, where we had our borders closed and we were the team of five million, and we did a stellar job at keeping the pandemic, I mean the 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 COVID the COVID virus out for so long. But you can't stop the brain virus at the border, right? The, the, the stuff that get, got into people's heads through algorithms and for them being on social media, that was just the same as anywhere in the world. But I think because we didn't really have COVID here in the country, the severity of the whole situation maybe wasn't as clear to some people who, who weren't. They, they thought I was really alarmist, and I was alarmist, and I, I stand by that. But I, I think I was alarmist for the right reasons. And then it took a lot of journalists in New Zealand – quite a long time to to catch up on that. And then everyone wanted to do their story about people who've fallen down the rabbit hole and, my God, and this is happening, that. And some journalists have done a great job here. I have to say, I mean, honestly, I take my hat off. Some of the reporting I've seen here in the last two years and investigative reporting, Paula Penfold's documentary, Fire and Fury on the protest scene. And I also wish all of this would have been done a year earlier or half a year earlier, right? Where where these things, where the writing was already in the wall, the players in the field were already clearly identified. It just hadn't really arrived in the mainstream yet that it's not all sweet here in Aotearoa, but we have the same problems as other big centers in the world where they have mass rallies and, and then we had them too. We had them here too and everyone was was shocked to see that. Do you know the the mass rally in Wellington that then ended with ended in a in a riot basically and things burning and so on? The riot itself, it wasn't so shocking for me because I've come from Europe, you know, as the first of May protests in Berlin have been going on for decades. It's not so shocking for me to see someone throw a brick at a at a cop, yeah. It's kind of what riots are all about. It's street fighting in Europe for you. So but for, for New Zealand, such a peaceful place that hasn't happened since the Springbok tour. So it was a real shock for people here that even the level the level of violence happened. And but Honestly, for me, that wasn't the main concern. It wasn't whether people got really angry after weeks of protesting and then they just lost their shit and they threw things around and they burned down a playground or so. Yep. I mean, no one got hurt. No one got killed. I'm, I'm, that's not my main worry. My main worry is really what you said before. The fact that they just stand next to people holding up swastikas or wanting to kill journalists and kill the prime minister and that that's okay and that they normalize that and that the, that those yeah, fascist ideologies are normalized in these spaces, even though probably the people who are holding up these signs wouldn't personally harm anybody. I, I really believe that, actually. <laughs> but they don't understand what they're aligning themselves with. And I think that's possibly part of the 
political remoteness and the historical innocence of New Zealand as well, which in, in other parts of the world, you couldn't get away with it. Mm, yeah, yeah. Towards the end of your book, you wrote about how you're now less interested when you speak to people who've come from these cults that you've looked into about the roles that they played back then and you want to know more now what they have done since. And you wrote, are they still holding on to their ideology, making excuses for it, or are they involved in a restorative process that helps the victim's recovery instead of whitewashing their own actions? And I think this is really key the people who come out of the woodwork when former members of their groups are talking about trauma and want to tell you about all the good things in the organisation, they're not listening to, from my perspective. It makes me think of all the racism in the world that I'll never see firsthand because I'm a white person. So I, coming back to your German heritage, can you tell me a bit about how that shapes your perspective on the best ways to move forward when one has been part of a damaging group of people? We have this great word in German, Vergangenheitsbewältigung. It's one of those long German words <laughs> with an umlaut. <laughs> and it means coming to terms with the past or coming to terms with a difficult past. And I guess that's, that's shaped my, my life and my whole, my generation and, and others before and after me is how do you repair the horrors of the past? How do you make right as a, as a collective? And I wish I could see more of that, especially with Centerpoint. With some other groups, I mean, like Gloria Vale, it's probably still too early. I'm sure a process will that like that. I mean, let's just say Gloria Vale is shut down or implodes. Everyone is out. I guess at some point they will also have to go through something because people in there were not always nice to each other. And there are hierarchies too and people in there, you know, people in cults do awful things to each other just because they're in cults. So in some ways they're victims and abusers at the same time. And you could say, I mean, if we go, you know, look at the bigger picture and this analogy with Nazi Germany, which I think does does apply somehow. I'm not wanting to make excuses for anyone who who did, you know, who followed Adolf Hitler and and was just a bystander. And at the same time, I just don't know what I would have who I would have been in that system. I, I always like to think of myself, I would have been a resistance fighter with Sophie Scholl, right? But do we really know? Have we really been put to the test? I haven't. And I don't also know what I, who I would have been in a, in a closed, high demand group. So, I mean, some things are unforgivable. No question about it. Or they, they at least should be criminalized. There should be, you know, people should be in courts for certain things. There's no doubt about that. And justice hasn't often been done in, with these kind of crimes. But then there's a large gray, gray area. Where, where some person could be a, a victim of a cult and also be an enabler and a bystander and even a perpetrator. And I think these people need help too. And this is where something like a truth and reconciliation process comes in, which South Africa has had. See, so here we have a fantastic political, historical, social justice example. And I think that could be applied for former groups. And with Centerpoint now, we've, we can really see that 20 years down the track, there are still factions, there are people trying to bring some kind of reparation forward. And it's not easy because not everyone is on the same page and nothing has really been established. And there are families where for 10, 20 years, the second generation often has been silenced by, by the first one or the former children have been told, no, no, you were, you were great. You had a great childhood. Nothing happened to you. It's only the social workers who later told you that you've been abused, but it was actually love. You know, if you grow up in this, this system, even after you're out of the cult, but you're still in your family and in your peer group and your family is your parents' friends and they uphold this kind of thinking, 
then where do you go to? Who, who can come and help you unpack all this in a collective way? Yes, maybe if you're lucky, you find a good counselor and you can do your own work and you can talk to a great person like Yanya Lalit, who you interviewed or read her book and get some help that way. But that's all on a just individual basis. But as a collective, where can people have – I mean, I would love to see something like this for Centerpoint, and I'm sure other people would too, where, where there could be some kind of mediated, well-held, professionally-held – process or, or meeting or space where, where something can happen. And I've seen this to some degree. Well, we've seen this in Austria with the Friedrichshof, the Ottomur commune. It was the European equivalent to Centerpoint, where there was a lot of more, there was a lot more Vergangenheitsbewältigung, that word again, a lot more Vergangenheitsbewältigung, um, much earlier on because they had a documentary, they had books, the, the second generation of children, they actually, they, they got together, they started a group of uh, survivors, a victims group. They protested when the guru, the former guru's artwork was shown because he wasn't a therapist like Rip Potter, but he was this radical enfant terrible of the, of the art scene. And his pictures were still selling and being exhibited even after he uh, died and been in jail and and all of the, and all the abuse was out in the open. His art was still selling, and the and the children of this cult were protesting. So they were a lot more vocal than the children of Centerpoint ever, ever were because the children of Centerpoint they were scattered and they were little subgroups and. You know, I've, there were people completely on their own, like Louise, who I met, the girl in the caravan. So the children from Ottomus commune they also pushed for public apology. And they got that from this from the first generation. That was, I think, about a decade ago. They they got the public apology. So something like that is, is really needed. And if you think of Australia and um, the indigenous population and how powerful it is, how powerful are apologies, right? They can really they can bring about change. And that needs to happen first. Before before any kind of forgiveness can come, I think the Side of the perpetrators has to has to apologize first, and then a process of true reconciliation can start. and And I really hope to see this for for cults. It's not all about bringing the evil leaders down and seeing them in jail. That's one thing, and it's super important. Justice has to run its course, yeah. And unless justice is done, you can't really help the victims. That needs to ha happen first. But then there's always another th side, and that's the side of reconciliation and of actually. You know, of people who were once a big family or, or lovers or connected or closest friends, how do they get to talk again and, and work through all this together? I think that work needs to be done as well. And that's probably where the truth and reconciliation process comes in. Yeah, that's such an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about that so much before because I think that sort of thing, it tends to be pretty impossible with a group where the original leader is still around because that original leader will never accept any responsibility, always says that it's a witch hunt or, you know, is being persecuted or whatever else. The, but the, there is always that really difficult question of who is still to be held responsible for their actions when they were in the group, even though they were acting in ways they never would have done had they not been a part of that group before. I think that's a really interesting idea. Absolutely. Mm. And uh, it made me think a lot about the children of God. A lot of when I was reading about Centerpoint was a lot of the same stuff. I think there was just no recognition that the ways that they had of exploring sexuality with children <laughs> that have just never been, they've never seen any kind of restitution for it. This is so many years ago and, and it's so well known what's happened. It's just mind boggling that that still hasn't 
resulted in any kind of outcome for, for the victims in those cases. That has actually brought me to the end of my questions. And Was there anything that we spoke about that you wanted to expand on at all? You covered everything. I just want to actually quote you because <laughs> I, <laughs> I picked up a sentence. I think it was a um, headline of a chapter, Cults are a feminist issue. And that's my, that's my latest mantra. Cults are a feminist issue because most cult leaders are male, right? Not all of them. There's TS1 and a few others. And the majority of followers are women. And so much sexual abuse happens in cults. You said this before. You know, our, our mutual hero, Yanya Lalic, she, um, she found out that about 40% of women in cults suffer sexual abuse. So that's far more than your average population. So I think cults are a feminist issue. They're not a weirdo issue. They're not, they're not an entertainment issue. They are a feminist issue. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And the, even the ones that are run by women, they usually end up with women subjugated the most in, in certain ways. They often have such a patriarchal setup anyway. It's just, yeah. Oh, I mean, we, look, we could do another whole episode just on women in cults, the second tier women. I'm so fascinated by that, right? The, the, in center point, the thought police, these, these top therapists, all women. Sheila in, in Osho or Bhagwan or Rajneesh's community. I mean, so many women, the women of Jonestown. That's also really fascinating. And these, and these mini patriarchies that are really, you know, like a, like a microcosm often of, of society. But then you have these often really likable, fascinating, seemingly empowered women on the second tier. And they normalize the guru, the, the craziness. They, they kind of, they pave the, I mean, they're a bit like, because Lane Maxwell for, for Jeffrey Epstein, right? They can be the groomers, they're the normalizers, they're the apologists, they kind of, you know, if, if the guru has been called out, then they're the ones saying, oh, well, you know, these are our pioneers, he's a pioneer and he makes mistakes. And, but look, you know, you can trust me. And they bring people back in again. So that's a whole other topic, but yeah, fascinating one. You, I, I said I came to the end of my questions, but you just mentioned Jonestown and that made me realise I had another one, um, which I think you've already covered in, in what you mentioned about headlines and things like that. But when you had one small mention of the end of Jonestown in your book and you referenced it as the 1978 Jonestown massacre, an intentional civilian mass killing with 909 dead. So many people call this event a mass suicide and your wording is so much more accurate. And I, I wondered about your feelings on the use of language about how some of these things are sometimes reported. Absolutely. Thank you. One of my pet issues. In fact, the, the review I got for Book of the Week, right? We mentioned before, um, in there, the review makes a lot of references to a book he's read, a book he's read about, um, Jonestown and the, and he, he speaks about the Kool-Aid. Well, actually, they didn't drink Kool-Aid, but let's not be too too fussy about that, whatever brand it was. Flavor, Flavor-Aid. <laughs> Flavor-Aid, that's right. <laughs> you drink the Flavor-Aid. That's, you know, the metaphor is not quite correct. But the metaphor of, you know, definitely a mass suicide is absolutely incorrect, not just is it not correct. It's actually, it's it's so minimizing the fact that people were, were coerced and even forced. And, I mean, the children who were killed there, did they? do this on their on their from their own free will well of course not it's i mean it's an absolutely heartbreaking scenario what played out there and anyone we can now have access to to the recordings as well and so on and it's it's just horrific and let's stop calling it a mass suicide because again it makes people sound really crazy like who would do that right who would do this and, i mean people do pretty extreme things and in heaven's gate people cut off and then they castrated themselves and they also then all died in the end and so it's 
language is so important. And even the word cult is tricky, right? I mean, we, we keep using it because it's it's kind of the word that everyone knows. But then again, it, it's so loaded and it often means something else. Like when you say a cult song, right? A cult song is a Beatles classic, but but it's not the chanting in a maybe a Buddhist card, right? So even that and I so I'm trying to use the word high demand group war, which we probably haven't probably haven't used enough on this on this podcast today. But but I think since we we really um no we can, we we did go deep. I, I I'm quite confident that we're not using too many cliches, but let's not call Jonestown a mass suicide. I totally agree with you. Yeah, I um I had a big chat with Yanya Holland about the use of the word cult actually, and I think we we're pretty keen to kind of keep using it. I, I guess I just try and be really careful about the terms I'm referring to when I use the word cult. So it is speaking specifically about groups that use coercive control and you know X, Y, and Z. It's not uh, which to other people they use the word in other ways, but I think as long as you're clear about what you mean when you're using it. A lot of the people who are trying to uh, get rid of the use of the word cult altogether, Yanil Alich likes to call them cult apologists. That's right. See, and that's so tricky because there are these, these different um, academic streams or even people from cults sometimes who appear as experts in the field, but they're actually apologists for, for certain groups and we've got to be wary of them. And it wasn't always clear for me at first too, who's what, and for a while I thought, oh, we can't use the word brainwash anymore because that's a, that's, that's actually not a correct term. And I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I probably don't know enough about that specific term, but I know there are different opinions about that too. So there are some very loaded words that, um, Language is powerful. You probably know and love the book Kaltusch by Amanda Montel, right? And her whole research as a, as a linguist, fantastic book, by the way, same publisher, HarperCollins, big shout out to them. <laughs> they, they're putting out all the good cult books these days too. And Penn Macmillan, of course. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> that is a great book about language and cults. And, and, you know, so one of the, Things, you know, people say, well, how do I know I'm in a cult? Well, if they use a certain language and you learn these new words and this terminology, I mean, Scientology was, was big on that, but I've even seen it in the Easter world and the New Age world and, and other groups and sort of psychotherapy cults or movements that could become cults. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of a new word for something. Ah, it was, I'm a bit skeptical. And then again, of course, you have also corporations where you use words or, you know, great, Great things like like great trainings, I would say, like Dare to Lead by Brené Brown. I'm a great fan of Brené Brown, and there are also some words. So it's, it's a sliding scale. Like when when does something become problematic? It's I still haven't I still haven't gotten the final answer on that yet, and I will get asked more and more. I'm sure over the next week. So is this a cult? Is that a cult? Isn't the Catholic Church a cult? Right? We get <laughs> we get asked this all the time. Isn't isn't the whole world a cult? And it's it's sometimes hard to to find a clear cut answer. I think one thing I've, I've Come to just for me personally, if you're adamant that the group you're in, which you love so much and like, it's come your whole life, and you're adamant it's not a cult, then it might be. Just because <laughs> the fact that you're so set on it not being a cult, especially your leaders telling you, no, we're not a cult. And the website, you know, even having as a Q&A, oh, people call it as a cult, but we're not a cult. I would say that's a red flag because if you've been called a cult, there must be some reason. So how about your answer to that would be, please tell us, 
where you think we're cult and tell us how we can do better so we don't become one. Please hold us accountable because we don't want to be a cult. That's a really good answer of a group for a group that's not a cult. But the one saying, oh, we're not a cult, we're the anti-cult. Anyone who's with us will never be in a cult because we give them all the tools not to be in a cult. That in itself is very cultic. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I think that in, in my book, because I'd looked into so many different cults for the podcast and I was trying to draw out a lot of the parallels between a lot of them, I also had to be very careful to say, you know, if, if one or two of these things exists, it, a group could very well not be a cult. But if you're seeing multiple of them, and here are some examples, that's when you really have to start thinking, could this be a problem? <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. I agree. Well, I, I, I've come to the end of my, I actually have come to the end of my questions now. I'm no longer lying to you. And so I just want to say, Thank you so much for chatting with me. It has been such a pleasure. Uh, for the Let's Talk About Sex audience, Anka and I have been in email contact for quite some time before this chat, and it's it's really such a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, Sarah, it's been, I mean, it's been, it's been probably the best interview I've given so far. I couldn't have gone any deeper with anyone any longer. <laughs> We've covered everything, and I'm, I'm such a fan of your work and of your podcast. I love the title too because people have to sort of listen again to get what it is. <laughs> You've done such great work on also on New Zealand cults, on, on others. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just very grateful to be here and talking to you. Thank you. That's been great. Uh, thanks, Anka. Anka Richter's book, Cult Trip, is out now in Australia and New Zealand, and I'm hoping internationally at some point in the future as well. Any plans? It will be, for sure. At the moment, everyone can read it internationally on Kindle as an ebook, and there will be paper copies out in other countries, but we won't know, I think, for another month or so, and then hopefully you will do a big shout-out <laughs> for your international fans and listeners once it's available in print in other countries. It will be. Fantastic. Thanks, Anka. Thank you. You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon or Acast Plus, linked in the show notes, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also grab a copy of my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was produced and edited by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. A very special thanks to Anka Richter for sharing her thoughts with me on my many questions. Further information sources and a link to where you can get a copy of Anka's fantastic book are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com and in the show notes. Thanks again to Audio Technica, presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top quality audio equipment, use promo code LTAS10 at audio-technica.com on their Australian store to get a discount and support this show. Their range of headphones and turntables is quite ridiculous, and don't get me started on their mics. Audio Technica, celebrating 60 years of listening. If you have been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to cult information and family support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, 
please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode.